Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. You can just allow yourself to breathe normally. Just tuning in with quality of loving attention, caring attention to this body sitting, this body breathing. You can just let the thoughts come and go in the background. You can also let sounds come and go in the background. But if you find yourself having drifted away into some stream of thought, you can just notice that. Connect again to the breath, to the body. Relax again. can label that thinking, planning, remembering, however it is. Just resting at ease, nothing to do, nowhere to go, nothing to become.
Just noticing where your attention is. Noticing how connected you are to this moment, to the experience of the body, experience of breath. And to see if you can sink in a little bit more deeply. And not by straining or striving. Just by settling in, allowing the attention to collect, connect with a deep intimacy to this body sitting, body breathing, with the quality of love and care.
and just resting at ease. And remembering that mindfulness can meet any experience of the body, of the mind, no matter how difficult, no matter how subtle.
So this uh, talk is uh, some reflections on different ways that you can relate to your meditation practice, your dharma practice, you could say. And part of the catalyst for it was my recognizing the ways in which over the course of my own uh, meditation practice or spiritual life, you could say, my relationship to the practice itself has changed a lot. So I started uh, doing this kind of practice formally uh, when I was in uh, college or university, which is now like over 30 years ago. And I know some of you are uh, fairly new to practice and that's great. So hopefully this will be interesting to you. And then some of you have been practicing also a long time and have maybe gone through many different cycles. So I kind of recognized that as my own practice went, went on, there's a way in which my relationship to it has changed or has had to change. And I see the same as I'm now uh, teaching and uh, guiding people as uh, Kalyana Mitta, as Dharma teacher, that oftentimes sort of the initial impetus for why people start to practice uh, has a lot of energy for some time. But then at a, a certain point, things shift in one's own life relationship. And then there can be a period of a little bit like flailing around or not knowing how to connect. And in some ways, like when we try to connect in a, a past way that is no longer as relevant or compelling, um, we can kind of lose the thread of uh, onward motion in our practice. So hopefully these reflections will be some that can help you to connect with some kind of renewed energy or interest to your own spiritual life, to your practice, you could say. Some of them also are going to be sort of counter to each other, because this is an aspect of the spiritual life, I think, is that uh, there's often paradox. So sometimes it's this way, and sometimes it's the exact opposite way. Um, yeah, what's the place of your practice in your life? Um, what's a bigger picture that can help you to hold this to continue to grow? And uh, you could reflect that maybe your own relationship to anything that you've had an ongoing connection to has had to change over your life. So, for example, let's say physical fitness or sports. Uh, so for myself, when I was younger, I played a lot of sports, competitive sports, uh, and was very into it in high school and college, middle school, all of that. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I left school had less time when I had a job to actually spend playing sports, but was still, you know, joining some teams and playing a couple times a week. And then uh, as I got older, my body changed. And then, you know, it was harder and harder to play uh, soccer or football as a 40 something against 20 somethings. And, uh, you know, had to adjust with that and uh, then have sort of changed what the exercise it is that I do. Uh, and, the uh, expectation of what the body will do. So it still is possible, certainly, to continue to have some um, relationship to physical exercise. Um, in fact, I saw a very uh, sweet um, film called Surfing for Life that was about um, people, people's relationship to surfing in their like 80s and 90s and how you know they're still surfing, but they're doing it in a different way and uh, what that connection is about. Um, even, let's say, your relationship to another person person. So some of you will probably have uh, children in your life. And uh, I myself have had a variety of uh, close nieces, nephews, uh, kids around in my family. And 
the relationship that you have to them when they're very small is one thing. You know, you have to take care of all of their needs. You have to constantly be paying attention to them. And then as they start to get a little bit older, they want to have more agency. So you have to shift what's my relationship to this child and uh, give them more opportunity to be independent. They become teenagers, then, you know, they, they really want their independence and um, sort of growing up and exploring on their own. And in each of these stages, you know, you have to sort of continuously recalibrate what is the appropriate relationship to have to this individual, right, in order to have a, a healthy, positive um, connection to them. And I know as an auntie, sometimes there were some kids I didn't see for a while, and they're totally changed and, you know, three months, six months, a year or something. And if I tried to relate to them like they were last year or two years ago, it totally did not work. You know, they were not up for that. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't treat me like a kid or a baby, right? Uh, so like that, like we have to continuously adjust our relationship or, you know, even those of you who have been in long partnerships, marriages, right? Like even if you have been married for 50 years, partnered for 50 years, the person you were with when you were 25, say, and now you're both 75, it's like very different in each decade and how you relate to each other and what the energy is and what you're up to together. So, you know, we have to like continually bring awareness, you could say, to any of these processes, to any of these aspects of our life. So what I'm suggesting here is that it's also helpful to do that even with one's Dharma practice and not get sort of static with it. So this title, 13 Ways of Looking at Dharma Practice, is a bit whimsical. There was a poem uh, by, I think it was Wallace Stevens, called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. This poem has nothing to do with this, but I, when I started brainstorming about uh, the different ways, I came up with 13 at first. Now there's many more, but uh, so the only thing it ha- the poem has to do with it is that the poem does have some different perspectives on this same uh, you know, blackbird. So here we have 13 Ways of Looking at Dharma Practice. So uh, for many people, the number one catalyst for engaging with Dharma, with meditation is uh, over 2,600 years continues to be suffering. So many people have come to practice through some deep experience of suffering in their life, through having loss of a job, having someone uh, pass away, uh, having an illness, um, having being in a pandemic, that's a big one. A lot of people are coming to it from the suffering of that, right? So something that basically has like knocked you off balance in some ways and your previous ways of relating uh, are no longer working. And so then some questions come up, some introspection, and then we sort of start to um, want to relate in a different way. Now, for some, the initial impetus then is that it's very stressful during these periods of, of suffering, of loss, and so then the impetus that comes is like, oh, I want to reduce my stress, right? So stress reduction. And that is a totally legitimate reason to come to practice, to want to be free from stress. Uh, so uh, I want to say also that as I'm um, you know, listing these out, uh, it may sound like you know, some are more highly evolved or better than others, but I don't want to um, leave you with that impression. So for example, you know, stress reduction, there's like this mindfulness-based stress reduction, things like that. And sometimes it can be seen as like, oh, that's lesser than. Um, but uh, one translation of the word dukkha, which is the uh, root cause of suffering, this, or sorry, dukkha, which is, is actually suffering, uh, strain, stress, difficulty, is uh, as stress. So dukkha reduction, that's a good reason to do practice. So maybe you came for that reason. 
However, for many people, after a while, that initial chaos of the mind or suffering starts to fade. And whether it's just time or uh, they mature in some way, the practice does its work, um, you know, that initial jolt that comes from that situation being disrupted or the difficulty of the marriage breaking up or the death of a family member, I start to get a bit more even keel about it, uh, equanimous about it. So then that no longer is the catalyst. So here's one inflection point where it's helpful to to see like, oh, what is it that uh, is going to lead me onwards in this? And at those moments, sometimes people start to let the practice fall off. Before, at first, they were clinging onto it like a drowning person is grabbing onto a log, you know, floating in the ocean and needing that so desperately. And then after it feels like, okay, the waves are subsiding or maybe you know, learn to swim a little bit. And <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I don't need to do this that much. Until though, you come to the next level of suffering. So <laughs> it's actually helpful to keep it up. Uh, so what what is another way of uh, looking at it? So another way of looking at it is also that this path of practice, and many people, you know, who are sort of converts to this come through the meditation, is only one of uh, many different aspects of what it takes for us to develop as people. So some of you may have heard of the Eightfold Path the Buddha talks about. So this encourages us to not just do meditation, which is an important aspect of it, but also to start to pay attention to our conduct in the world, how we speak, how we act, uh, how we do our jobs, uh, then also to continue to clarify our view, you could say, like uh, right view, samaditi, uh, through understanding of dharma, the truth of the way things are, and so on. So another way of looking at this meditation practice, dharma practice, is that it's one part of Eightfold Path, right? And it's helpful to develop it, but also it's helpful to connect with these other aspects of our uh, human development, you could say. Okay. Another way is you could look at your Dharma practice as a mode of rest. So for many people, they're very busy in their lives, uh, running around, work, uh, family, uh, taking care of chores. And we don't spend much time just resting, resting the mind, resting the body. So even if you just conceive of this period of practice, let's say you say half an hour a day, I'm just going to sit still and not be busy, you know, not busy the mind with thinking about things or concocting things, not busy the body with doing things, and actually just allow like whatever kind of knots are there just to rest, relax, you know, unwind a little bit. Uh, that's totally fine, right? That's actually, I can be helpful. And then, you know, different things will come up to uh, check out, investigate, you could say, to rest. So sometimes people go on retreat too. Here's a different angle. Uh, for example, go on retreat at Gaia House. Uh, some of you have been, I know, and um, you have deep experiences, usually of concentration, collectedness, uh, have insights into the Dharma and to the characteristics of existence. But then you actually go home and you start to meditate again. And suddenly you're back in the circumstances of having a busy life having noisy uh, neighbors or, you know, family members. And then suddenly it feels like, oh, my meditation practice is not really as profound as it was when I was at Gaia House, right? So then maybe it doesn't make sense to do it. It's kind of a waste of time. It almost feels like 
you sit at the end of the day and you're just rehashing the day, you know, the conversations you had, the things you did. And it can sometimes feel just like you're taking out the garbage or something like that, like constantly coming back, coming back, coming back. Right. So uh, I remember um, one of my teachers telling me, like, even if it feels like that, just taking out the garbage, uh, it still is worthwhile. <laughs> so remember that taking out the garbage is an important aspect, for example, in your house. <laughs> so if you are just, uh, you know, observing different chaos of the mind or things that you didn't attend to during the day, trying to let that go, trying to be present with that, allow the energy to move through. Yeah, that still is a helpful thing. So uh, taking out the garbage also can be a helpful perspective if that is motivating to you to actually uh, have a regular practice. Okay, different perspective. Uh, and for myself, that different periods in my practice, one or another of these was like very compelling. So basically, if one of these is compelling to you, then great, like stay with it until it doesn't work for you anymore. So this next one is related actually to the um, metaphor I was saying about physical fitness, that there's a way in which we can consider our mind uh, and the ways in which our, our mind operates, uh, some aspect of you could say like a mental fitness. And when we do practice, we're developing uh, different skills, qualities of mind, for example, concentration, mindfulness, equanimity, uh, various different positive aspects of mind that are being developed. Now we're always developing our mind in some ways, uh, whether we have a formal practice or not. You know, So if you're trying to do five things at once, you're usually cultivating distraction, you could say. Uh, if you are out in the street and you get into an altercation with someone, you start to yell at them, in that moment, you're cultivating anger. Uh, if you are waiting for a stoplight and instead of rushing through it, you pause, you're cultivating patience. So we're actually always cultivating something in our mind. Uh, so in this way, you could say that the metaphor here is of mental fitness, right? So mental fitness, you're taking yourself to the uh, gym of the heart-mind, chitta, right? And cultivating these qualities of concentration, uh, mindfulness, equanimity, all of these good qualities. So it's important, it's helpful to do this in an intentional way in the formal practice. And then the more that you do that, the easier it is to sort of bring that into uh, also cultivating in the regular life as well. And uh, my favorite quote about um, practice that's related to this that some of you may have heard me um, saying is from the martial artist Bruce Lee. And he was talking about physical training, but he said, under duress, we do not rise to the level of our expectations, but we fall to the level of our practice. So under duress, so basically when push comes to shove, uh, we don't rise to the level of our expectations. Like we don't suddenly become some imagined version of ourselves. We fall to the level of our practice. So what we have trained in and practiced uh, is what shows up for us. And uh, in his way, it's like with the physical fitness, it's sort of like, oh, you could do it in, the, in training. And then if someone actually you know, physically attacks you, you have at the ready the possibility of these moves, right? Because you've trained in them. So similarly like this, you know, you train in, uh, this mental fitness. So um, you could say that this, uh, you know, practice is like a very courageous act of in each period saying, let me be present with steadiness and openness and awareness as best I can with whatever it is that shows up in the body, in the mind, 
right? I'll meet that with courage, with openness, with wisdom. So we expand our ability to be present in some ways with uh, difficulty. And then that also helps us when we meet difficulty in our life in the world. So sometimes people ask, for example, you know, in the instructions, it's like, okay, like, keep the body as steady as possible. And then, you know, notice even simple things, like if there's an itch that comes, uh, there's nothing unethical about itching, right? Nothing wrong with that. But as part of our training in mindfulness, we want to become aware, like, oh, what is the impetus for that? Uh, feel the body sensation. Notice that that arises on its own. Also, we can then notice the uh, craving, the sort of like, like wanting to, to reach and itch that, right? So we train ourselves to notice that kind of dynamic there. And then that allows us to notice that kind of dynamic as it shows up in other times in the world too. Okay. The translation of sati, one of the translations is of remembering. So I think that's an interesting way of approaching one's Dharma practice to uh, remembering in a variety of ways. So one is the remembering, like um, knowing what is true, you could say, the remembering to be present and the cultivating that, uh, and in some ways, like sort of planting the seeds of that such that they can arise more and more in our life. But also, if you consider sort of the physical body, sometimes it's called like uh, members, like the arm is a member, the leg, you know, the head. Is, and there's a way in which when we go around in the world, especially if we're thinking a lot and have a very sort of mental aspect to our life uh, online and things like that, we become uh, separated from the physical body. And that makes us also separate from often an experience of emotion, of knowing what's happening uh, in the body. Uh, of being connected to intuition, you know, all kinds of things. So remembering can also mean sort of like coming back into <laughs> wholeness with all of these otherwise kind of spread out and disconnected members of the body. So uh, practice as remembering sati. Okay. Another aspect. Practice can be seen as a lab. Laboratory, laboratory uh, as a place when we can bring investigation to understand uh, the answers to certain questions that we have. So questions could be like, what is the cause of suffering? You know, what causes us to suffer? So not by thinking about it, but by actually observing the direct momentum, the way in which these things get created and concocted. Or a question about, you know, who am I? Who am I really? So beyond what someone else tells me I am, or I imagine myself to be, who am I? So there's another question that can be answered in the lab, you could say, of Dharma practice. Uh, the uh, interesting thing in this lab is that, you know, this body-mind system is the lab, but, you know, uh, some in some sense, like you are the lab and the equipment and the petri dish or something like that. <laughs> so you're like both the scientist and the mouse in this uh, story, right? So you get curious about some aspect and then be interested to observe, you know? And this is a cultivation of the quality of investigation, of um, inquiry investigation to, you know, be interested in, for example, uh, like even something as simple as like, well, why does the mind wander, right? 
so supposing you were like, oh, I'm going to sit here and pay attention to the breath, the body rest. And then what, what does the mind do? Like, why does it get up to this and that? Why does it rehash the day? What is it doing? Uh, so you can actually observe that in some ways, just like you would sort of be interested in observing an animal. Like if there's like a rabbit who comes to your garden and it's like, oh, where does it come from? What does it like to do? What does it eat? Does it have rabbit friends? Where does it leave? Uh, where does it sleep? What is it afraid of? You know, you could just get curious and you would learn about that by observing, by watching, by sitting quietly and observing. So similarly, we can sort of learn to observe aspects of our mind, heart, you could say. Okay, now we're about halfway through. <laughs> so continuing on, uh, you know, an earlier one I said was about stress reduction, right? And that's a key one of why people start to meditate. At a certain point, there can be a perspective that is actually the opposite of that in some ways. That is, uh, it's almost like stress induction. <laughs> so stress induction, meaning like tuning into stress more and more, which can lead to freedom. So you're allowing yourself to see in more and more detail the ways in which you are caught, in which you are suffering, in which you are already under stress. So, you know, normally the way that we deal with something happening that we don't like is we might distract ourselves. We might try and find a, a pleasant experience to uh, kind of paper over. We might move. We might try and talk to someone. In Dharma practice, again, when we have this kind of like discipline of wanting to sit or so you go and retreat, you're actually in some ways like allowing that stress or difficulty to be revealed more and more. And even as simple as uh, allowing the dukkha of the body, the ways in which the body is, basically, if you leave it for even just like a few minutes, can get uncomfortable, you know, itchy, uh, cold, hot, whatever. So we start to notice that. So we're kind of like, uh, in some ways, allowing stress to arise. And then as we meet each of these different layers of stress, uh, which there are more and more subtle layers along the way, uh, then there's the possibility of freedom from them. So one metaphor for this that I think about is like, uh, you know, say if you're walking along a path and uh, you find that you have some like stones in your shoes, then uh, at some point it becomes uncomfortable. So you stop and you shake out the stones, put the shoe back on. Then maybe you walk further. And then after a while, you start to notice like, oh, there's actually pebbles in my shoes, right? So you want to stop, you shake out the pebbles, then you go a little further and then suddenly you start to notice, oh, it feels like there's like sand in my shoes, right? So then you take off the shoe, shake it out, right? Something like that. Uh, so when you were walking with the uh, more large rocks, you didn't notice the pebbles, you didn't notice the sand, that stuff was much more subtle, right? But it was still there. And uh, each different stage, you're kind of tuning into something that is more nuanced and that allows you to feel that suffering and then to release that, you could say. So, you know, this is true, uh, even if your initial impetus was some like big scale epic suffering of death or loss or something like that, that after a while, even if that alleviates itself, there's some way in which, yeah, there still is some uh, dukkha, mis misalignment, dis-ease in the system. And so it's helpful to tune into that and that can bring us to deeper and deeper levels of well-being, of uh, freedom from suffering, of ease, of liberation, you could say. So I'm, I kind of alluded to this next perspective uh, with this uh, 
previous one, uh, that there's something about Dharma practice that can be like realignment. So uh, there's a way in which uh, one translation of Dharma is uh, nature or the truth of the way things are. And uh, a metaphor for this is that there are ways in which we need to learn to align ourselves with how things are in the world that help us to lead more uh, harmonious lives. So in the physical realm, for example, a law that governs is the law of gravity, right? So we learn to live in alignment with the law of gravity. So, you know, I have this cup here with water, and if I try to place it in midair, it's going to fall, right? So it's better for me to place it on this table, right? And then it doesn't have spills, breakage, and so on. But, you know, people don't always understand that. So when you're a baby, you don't understand the law of gravity. And you see sometimes babies sort of experimenting with this, kind of playing around with this. And, you know, maybe they will like see something, uh, they're sitting in the high table and they'll like see something and then they'll drop it off and then it falls. And then they're like, oh, what happens if I do it on this side? And then, you know, it falls. And then what happens if you do when you're not looking and it falls? And then after a while you get the sense, okay, if I try to drop something, if I try to place something in midair, it's going to fall to the ground, right? And you don't even have to understand why that is or what the mathematical equation is or if someone is running that or any of that. It's just an develop an understanding about that dynamic and then live in accordance with that. So similarly with Dhamma, it's like there are ways in which we are not living in accordance with the truth of the way things are. Um, so for example, uh, that everything in our experiential world uh, is subject to change. Intellectually, we might get that, but actually we don't live in alignment with that which is revealed when we become disappointment or when we are expecting something to last longer than it is. It changes, it shifts, and then we suffer. So one aspect of Dharma practice is kind of like realignment. So the ways in which we're off and that being off includes the ways in which we are sort of out of an alignment, for example, with um, training precepts. So we're causing harm to others. We're allowing uh, greed to sort of take over our system uh, and acquire things uh, that are not ours. We're using sexual energy in a way that's not skillful. Um, we're speaking uh, what is not true. So all of these are ways in which we can be out of alignment. And um, those of you who have been on retreat will recognize sometimes that as you sit more and more, all of this stuff sort of gets kicked up. Like you start to remember and know more and more the ways in which you're out of alignment. So it's sort of a way of like, allowing the system to unravel, undo these kind of kinks, knots, and come back into alignment with the truth of the way things are. Okay, a few more. <laughs> uh, you might consider that, uh, you might have heard about awakening, right? Uh, enlightenment, awakening, this kind of thing. And uh, whatever that may be, uh, if you continue with your Dharma practice, it makes you more likely to have that be an aspect of your being, you could say. So it's sort of like uh, uh, buying the lottery ticket for awakening, you could say. <laughs> so every time you sit, you're giving yourself more chances for awakening. Awakening in small ways, awakening in big ways. 
Um, now, how is it that you could understand awakening? Since I've said this, it's only fair to um, describe a little. Uh, one way of relating to that is uh, relating to this, like this alignment thing I'm saying. And to be fully awakened is actually to be completely aligned with the truth of the way things are, with the Dhamma, with nature, right? So each time that you practice, you give yourself more chances to uh, do that. And if, you know, those who are in a lottery state of mind, you could say it gives you more chances to win, right? <laughs> like if you buy more lottery tickets, you could win, right? Okay, now we're shifting into a, a sort of a different aspect of things that is maybe a little bit more mystical than the, you know, mental fitness and laboratory and so on. This last uh, few perspectives. So one is a practice of relating to practice in some ways like a devotional practice, right? A devotional practice. Uh, and, you know, this may feel, again, like one that's sort of opposite to the sort of laboratory one that's kind of scientific and, you know, experiment inquiry. But they're all kind of like different angles on, you know, a similar thing. So in this way, like with devotional practice, it's like um, cultivating a sense of love and loyalty to the truth, you could say, to the Dharma, um, if you want, you could say even to yourself, you know, something to that which is, um, yeah, most important. So there's a way in which practice can take on an, an aspect of a devotional quality. And, you know, sometimes if you have done practice for a while, and if you have heard Dhamma, and you start to get a sense of this sort of broader, more sacred uh, field in which all of this can take place, then uh, you feel a sense of reverence around this, you know, and, and maybe even you have a sense of wanting to bow down, you know, in, in taking refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, or even to just something greater than sort of like me and my meditation practice, right? Uh, so one can relate to this like a devotional practice, and in that way, actually have that kind of loyalty, steadiness, um, connection to it um, that uh, one does to a devotional practice. And devotion includes some aspect of love, you know. And this is not um, foreign from the descriptions that the Buddha gives of uh, even mindfulness practice. In fact, one of the words that's used in the translation in Satipatthana Sutta is about ardent. So ardent, fully aware and mindful. So bringing an ardency, this kind of um, love, you could say. So uh, practice of love is also another one. So cultivating this uh, loving awareness, loving awareness we practice having in the formal practice, and then that gives us more of a chance to bring that quality of loving awareness to everything in our life outside of the meditation. Right? So cultivation of love. Okay, two more I'll give you. So now I was saying we're getting into the more sort of mm, mystical kind of ways. So there's a way in which one could uh, relate to Dharma practice. Um, once in some ways one has like a little bit of a connection to it or to the insight to the Dharma as kind of a sacred ritual, you know, that there is a aspect of practice that is like a sacred ritual. And it's almost like blowing on an ember. You know, say you're, you're trying to start a fire and there's a, an ember there, like a, a sort of small glowing ember. And so how do you keep that alive is by... Right. 
So even as you're tuning in to your breath and the body, you're actually blowing on the embers of your own awakening of the wisdom unfolding of the, yeah, the Dhamma is, uh, is there and you're, you're sort of like allowing those uh, embers to catch fire and to, uh, yeah, burn through all of the dross and the kilesa and everything that's in the way. So sacred ritual, it could be seen as. And this can be very motivating, you know, to, in some ways, and you can support your uh, relationship to practice in this way by um, sometimes creating some sort of even small um, ritual actions around uh, your formal meditation. Now, you totally don't have to. Some people are very much not into that at some points. But it could be that you want to put uh, an altar somewhere that has some things that remind you uh, of what is most important to you. You know, it could be like Buddha statue, could be like something from nature, <laughs> uh, could be some pictures of the teachers that inspire you or, yeah, anything, quote something. Mm, yeah. So you could make that. And, you know, you could, if it is helpful to you, make a special place for this sacred activity, you know, if you have room enough in your apartment to do that. Uh, so just helping with that sort of sacred ritual aspect. And then the last one I'll say is uh, that practice can be seen as a practice in and actually just resting in not knowing. So this one is also a kind of counter to the laboratory experiment, understanding, you know, developing knowledge, all this stuff, that there's a way in which uh, some of what we're developing is recognizing that everything is changing in every moment and it's not changing according to our wishes. And thus each moment of our life, of our existence is like a mystery unfolding, you know, and there's a way in which uh, our usual relationship to it can be very clingy, you know, to grab onto, to grasp, you know, all this kind of thing. And actually uh, that is a stress reaction, a fear reaction uh, to having some contact with the fact that we don't know so much about life, about what's going to happen, you know, and we can see this with the pandemic with each different wave. It's like, Oh, okay, we'll get to the end of this one. So when uh, you know, like when this uh, wave of, of, COVID finishes, like, oh, when vaccination finishes, uh, then when we get past Delta variant, oh, when we get past Omicron variant, oh, when we get, you know, like there's, and each time you could feel your mind, like wanting it to be like, oh, done, and to know when the time is when I can do X, Y, and Z. So there's a way in which Dharma practice can help us with uh, resting and not knowing. So just sit, you know, just sit, notice when the mind wants to grasp, wants to know, you know, wants to create an agenda and accomplish something and get somewhere and all of this. And then just like, no goal, nothing, just resting with not knowing. Right. And the more that we make our peace with that, you know, the more that we're at ease with this not knowing, then the more we'll be at ease with that as it shows up in all different aspects of our life, you know, about our health, about the political system, about the pandemic, about relationship, you know, every which thing, right? And it won't necessarily change any of those specific things, but we'll be more at ease with those things. And thus, actually, when we're not clinging to grasping some old way of fixing or fixating, 
it allows a more spacious ability for us to relate with uh, freshness, uh, creativity, and uh, come up with some, yeah, appropriate, helpful response in some ways. Okay, so that was the 13 ways of looking at Dharma practice. It does not matter if you got all of them or either wrote them down or knew what I was talking about or anything. <laughs> so you can take a breath, breath in and as you exhale, just let go of all of it. If there was something that was interesting to you, compelling to you, that was something it's like, oh, I want to try that on, then great, like play with that one, you know, and the way you can play with that is to say like, oh, let me for the next week, the next month, I'll practice or play with kind of relating to my practice in that way, and then see how it goes, you know, see what becomes revealed, if you will. So I've uh, talked a fair amount. Uh, maybe I'll pause there and see if anyone has, first I'll ask for any questions uh, that you have to clarify anything um, about the perspectives that I offered. Um, yeah. So if you have a question, you could raise your virtual hand, which is under the reactions thing, because uh, I can't see all of your actual physical hands. And if you're willing, then we will uh, you can bring you in to ask your question. I'll say in this format too, because we have limited time, um, it's good to make even the asking of questions on Zoom a practice. So mindfulness practice in which you think about and try to come to the sort of most pithy uh, distillation of the question, right? So some people tend to have sort of roaming, meandering thoughts, but the more you roam, the less time there is for other people to ask a question to. So, you know, if you're someone who needs to reflect on it, you could like write a little bit and then come to like what the, the shorter version of the question might be. Uh, and yeah, happy to try to answer it. And if I need more info, I'll ask you a question back. So. Okay, I see. Um, Mikhail? Yes. Um, thank you, Anushka. Uh, my question is uh, about the changes in between these uh, ways of looking at the Dharma practice. How to navigate our reflection when we notice that one way of looking has come to an end. It doesn't work for us anymore, but we don't yet know what the next one could be, should be what fits for us in the future, how to navigate that shift in a wise and uh, fruitful way. Yeah, thank you for the question. I think the first part is the, um, is the recognizing that it's not sort of working anymore, what our previous perspective was. So, you know, being as honest with yourself about that as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, in that way, then even doing some inquiry reflection about that. Um, and for this purpose, you could even do some sort of writing if writing helps you to, you know, just sort of germinate about that and recognize like, oh, what is the perspective I'm holding? Um, and how is that perspective like not working in this moment anymore? Right. Uh, and there can be, you know, something sort of like fortuitous about this sometimes about just like, feeling into what would be a more, you know, sometimes we use the term like onward leading kind of way of engaging. So some of it can be from, um, 
you know, like one reason that I sort of generated this list was to sort of offer some possibilities. Like, so, you know, you could sort of look at that list and just read through them and consider and be like, oh, wow, realignment, that's kind of cool. Let me see, you know, and then you're interested in that one. So then play with that. Um, other things is like, even though, even if other people aren't expressly saying like, oh, this is my perspective on my practice, even just from hearing other people talk about their practice, kind of embedded in it is often some different perspective, like some aspect of that, right? And, um, you know, as you hear other Dharma talks or even read Dharma books or something, uh, you can sort of get um, positively infected in this way, <laughs> you know, by someone else's uh, perspective. So for example, like with the devotional kind of thing, uh, you know, some people find, have find that they don't, they don't totally relate to that at first because they've come in with a sort of more uh, cognitive um, or intellectual approach to uh, Dharma practice. But then they actually go to, for example, like a monastery or even like listen to chanting or something like that. And then that sort of like connects them in some ways to that like devotional side that they weren't uh, connected to or allowing themselves to feel or anything like that. Right. So in some ways, like being open to some very different ways. And then at those moments, then sometimes people have doubt is like, oh, wow, like, was my previous perspective wrong? And like, now this one is right, or something like that. So I would encourage to hold it with a lot of um, uh, a lot of spaciousness and pluralism in some ways that it's not that like that one is wrong, and this one is right, you know, but it's like, oh, these are different kind of like angles on the jewel of the Dhamma. And, you know, whatever it is that is helpful for us and sort of onward leading is great. Similarly, I think it's helpful not to like judge others for what their perspective is, right? Because sometimes you can get into this like, oh, yeah, I used to look at it like mental fitness until I've evolved. And now, you know, I'm in the, you know, sacred ritual time of my life, but I was once like you. And, you know, so, you know, that's not too helpful either. So <laughs> you could notice if you have developed some attachment to perspective or idea of, uh, you know, this perspective as being like better or not uh, too. So. Yeah, just some thoughts about it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Interesting question. I think um, I think these are not necessarily um, completely discrete, different ones. So yeah, I think totally that they could be combined in some ways, um, and also even during one period, it could be that there's different aspects that are revealed. And in some ways, like you know, we could have there's there sort of is the intentionality behind it, you know, like, oh, okay, let me try on this perspective. But also there's sort of like what becomes revealed, you know, as we practice, which, uh, you know, this also, by the way, is not like the de definitive list of like, there's only 13 and this is it, right? There's probably many, many more. And, you know, some of you may have, have already uh, thought of them or relate to them. So uh, it's all good, you know, in some ways, as long as it's kind of like um, helping you to continue in some way. Um, so yeah, I think it's okay with that. Now, the thing about the bouncing around, like, I don't know if some of that related to also a bouncing around within technique, you could say, right? So if you're practicing jhana, or I think I heard you say something jhana, like a constant deep concentration mm -hmm. practice versus mm -hmm. practicing uh, sort of mindfulness insight kind of practice. So with that, I think it is good to have some clarity about um, what it is that you are cultivating and why. Um, because otherwise, sometimes if you have too many different techniques, in a way, the mind can be doing a slightly more refined, but basically just like going for what seems pleasant or what is um, 
yeah, what feels good or something like that. And then, you know, oh, that doesn't work. I'll do this. I'll do that. So um, this goes back to a sort of a devotional aspect. Like it's helpful if it's like, okay, I'm going to do meta practice then like for that period, do the meta practice, you know, and then there can be some moments of doubt, which is like, oh no, maybe I should do insight. Maybe, you know, but like, okay, for this time, just come back, come back, come back, see what there is to learn like that. So I think it is helpful to have some clarity within the technique, so to speak. Um, but as far as sort of like what the framing is of it or what's revealed, yeah, I think several of these can be combined too. Yeah. Uh, maybe it depends on who's asking, right? Uh, on uh, who's asking and why, like how you would answer that, because I think any of these perspectives are relevant. Uh, you know, if it's someone who's a good friend and they're like really authentically asking you about it, then I think you can share what is your real authentic, like deepest connection to practice at that moment, right? Uh, yeah. Which could be any one of these or something else, you know, and but it's different if someone is just casually asking you or something, you know, then then you may not. Uh, yeah, you may not feel like you necessarily want to like dig deep and sort of reveal something that feels like very uh, sacred or close to you in some ways. So yeah, there's like so many perspectives and why one could do this that um, there's not necessarily like one right or wrong answer, I think in that way. Yeah. And, and, yeah. you know, I've been just like, you could share for many people, it's sort of like, what is the, what they really mean is like, what do you get out of it or something like that? You know, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know? Yeah. so then, you know, you could say, you could just give some of the benefits, you know, of, of whatever you think would help that person in that way, you know? Yeah. So, That's yeah. All right. So we're coming towards the end of the time, but I'll see if anyone has any other questions. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. How often? I mean, in some ways, I think you can go on for years, really, without feeling the need even to ask this question, you know, as long as there's still some juice and, you know, maybe then you just observe what the shifting perspectives are. So it isn't necessarily that, like, you have to do it at certain, you know, junctures. So one answer to that question is like when it starts to feel very stale or when you stop doing it really, you know, when you find yourself like, like ah, I don't really want to do it anymore or something, then be like, Oh, what's happening. Like, what's the perspective that I'm holding around it? Why is it not working anymore? You know? So then that's a point of um, helpful inquiry. I think, I mean, I suppose you could do it in some sort of like, you know, like um, people do like sort of quarterly review sort of thing, <laughs> you know, you could do something like that, like, or, you know, once a year you could do it uh, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I don't think you need to busy your mind with like making it overly um, like thinking about it too much, nor in some ways do you even like need to have some sort of like manifesto about why I'm doing practice that you can like, you know, regurgitate to people or lecture people about or anything like that you know so in some ways like all of these are just frames that sort of help us energetically engage with the practice I would say um, but it's not like uh, we have to have a sort of like um, you know coat of arms of our <laughs> like meditation practice or t-shirt or something like that you know for it um, but at the same time, if it's inspiring to you to make a flag of it, then, you know, stick it up in the wall to remind you, you know, like sometimes it can remind you, uh, you know, whatever this is like realignment or, you know, uh, 
sacred ritual or resting and not knowing. So yeah, if it helps to make a poster and put it on the wall to remind you of that, then like, great, you know, do it. So <laughs> I think related to that also, um, this maybe I've been embedded in some of the perspectives that I've said, but that, um, yeah, there's a way in which in, initially it's like, oh, the suffering and trying to grapple with it and deal with it. But then uh, for me at different times, my practice also has been inspiring that um, I see teachers or people who are further along in the path than me. And it just inspires me that they say they got to be how they are, like wise, loving, et cetera, by doing the practice. And so there have been periods in which like, that's enough for me, you know, like that's inspiring enough is like, they're saying they got like they are by doing this. So I'm just going to do it. <laughs> so, you know, that inspiring by the inspired by the positive qualities of someone else, you know, along the path too, which in formal sense, like there often is in Buddhist practice, like reflect on the qualities of the Buddha, the qualities of mind and so on. Yeah. So, okay. Thank you. Uh, Archana. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's related to many of these things because, you know, in the observing of stress, like part of that is noticing the ways in which we're striving, right? And there's big and little ways in which we're striving all the time. And then feeling into the suffering of that, noticing the way in which that is actually yeah unsatisfactory and we don't want to do that and then allowing that to let go. So, I mean, just because I had to, in sort of linear time, arrange them in some way, I did, you know, roughly arrange them maybe according to what is maybe a more accessible perspective for people or what's a more common one, you know, and then, you know, onto the sort of more mystical and, uh, you know, yeah, I figured if I just started with, you know, sacred ritual ember blowing, you might lose some people in the beginning of the talk. So <laughs> kind of lead towards that, but um, yeah, they're all connected too uh, in some ways that I, uh, yeah, I think the resting and not knowing is a beautiful one to hold. And then noticing noticing in some ways when the mind snaps out of that and is like wanting to know. Like, I want to know. I want to uh, understand. Every, understand. I want to know what happens next. Or even the fictitious sort of like delusional mind of like, I know. I know what happens. You can notice this even in small ways when it's like, you know, even with being present with the breath, um, you know, the mind gets bored of that. And it's like, I know it's going to happen in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. Of course, like that's nothing new to see. It's like, oh, okay, look at that. That's the mind of knowing, the know-it-all you know, mind that's like, I know it's going to happen, which is nothing. It's like, you don't know, we don't know nothing. Like, who knows what's going to happen next, right? So, yeah, practicing that perspective. All right. So coming to the end of our time here, um, thank you all of you for uh, engaging with the Dharma and the uh, meditation and to, for listening to these perspectives. So I hope it's uh, been beneficial for you and um, uh, invite you to play with these uh, as they are helpful. Uh, I'm teaching a number of retreats now. The ones in the U.S. are actually in person uh, these days, I'm teaching in uh, in Canada also a little bit in person this year. So if you want to see about that stuff, uh, I have a Dharma website, which is anushkaf.org. I think that was in the email that was sent to you, too. And in this tradition, we uh, share the Dharma in uh, out of uh, dana, generosity, and then we invite people who are willing to support the teachers, the teachings also to do so. And so in this format now in the electronic begging bowl version of it, uh, you can send something if you would like to, to support through uh, 
PayPal. Uh, and that was sent in the email also, anushkasanga at gmail.com. And also, uh, those of you in the US, we have something called Venmo. You could do send also, but also through the Gaia House uh, website, you can do that um, as well. So, uh, so thank you uh, for your attention. It's been lovely to be with you. I uh, hope some point we can be in person together uh, safely. I'm wishing all of you well. Please take care of yourselves and each other too. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.